Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Let me read just the first portion a little bit to you from Exodus chapter 30 at the beginning portion. Let me begin at verse 11. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This little procedure, they would uh, number the men of war to number the size of the nation from those that were of the age of over 20, 20 and over. And as they were numbered, they would come by through the, through the counting process and they would have to put a half shekel in. And it was called a ransom. Um, let me just give you the short uh, version of this whole thing. To take life uh, in front of the eyes of God is not a good thing. You know, God is the God of the living. Even if it's for the reason of war, it really is a necessary evil. It's not something that is desired or purposed of God. And there is in the Torah, this is one of three places in which that the rule or the, or the payment of a ransom is required. Ransoms were paid for when there was going to be or there had been accidental death. There was death which was not intended or on purpose. Now, in the case of murder, there was no ransom. You know, you paid with your life. But in the case of uh, where it wasn't intentional, you could pay a value called a ransom for it. In this particular case, why would they be taking a census? To number the men before they go to battle. Now, in the course of doing that, everybody knows we're getting ready to go to war, and there's a very good possibility we will kill someone. Necessary evil required of us to do, cannot really escape it. And so that we would honor before God, even our enemies have lives, even they have been created by God, we would pay a ransom. We would pay, make an atonement for ourselves that we would have to take life uh, for it. So it, the price was a half shekel, and this, this money uh, was used in the temple. More specifically, let me tell you in next week's portion where we'll find out that this particular shekel of the silver will be used. It's in every socket and joint that attaches the temple. Every socket, joint, attaching hardware of the temple is made of silver. Every piece of wood that hooks together, every tent draping, everything was hooked by silver. It is called the coin of redemption to be redeemed, as opposed to gold. Now I want to set up a contrast for you here. This Torah portion starts off with the silver thing, 
and it's going to end up talking about Israel making a golden calf. Kind of an interesting contrast, you know, that's set up in this thing. There are three um, valuable substances that the Scripture repeatedly uh, gives us concerning attributes or characteristics that we should be striving for in the Lord. They're, they're likened symbolically to gold, silver, and precious stones. And the short, and, uh, the short version of that, to give you an explanation that you'll find consistent in the Scripture, is gold always has to do with your intimate or personal relationship with God. Silver always has to do with the work of the Redeemer, the work of redemption, the work of the gospel. Precious stones has to do with the individuals. And it's like when God tells us to invest ourselves in gold, silver, and precious stones, then it means have an intimate relationship with God, be doing the work of the gospel, and invest your life in precious stones, other people. That's the part that goes forward into eternity that is the great value you take with it. You know, you, know, you, know, you ever seen the hearse with a U-Haul after it? I saw that uh, cartoon the other day. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Now, you, you, you make the investment here, and it's kind of on account up there. And it's in gold, silver, and precious stones. And one of the things that is brought out here, the work of redemption, is even when we have to deal with the enemy, they use this coin, the coin of redemption, uh, as a part of the census process. It says, you shall do this so that no plague among them when you number them. And there's a couple of different versions of how that's interpreted. One is, so you yourself won't get killed, you know, in battle. You know, if you go out, you're going out to, to destroy the enemy, but you're not going out to give your life up. Uh, you know, George Patton, in his uh, famous speech to the Third Army, you know, said, I want you to go out and make the other guy give his life for his country. I don't want you to go out and give your life for your country. You know, the purpose is go out and make him, you know, give his life, not you. And that was kind of the purpose behind this. Pay the half shekel so you don't have to give up your life. You've paid, made atonement so the other guy has to give up his life. Uh, same kind of uh, concept here. It's actually to promote life in the midst of preparing for war. Two other elements of the uh, of the temple area are then introduced to us in chapter 30 the labor the washing labor for the priests and then the anointing oil and the temple incense and spices the uh, the labor uh, that was set it was set out into the inner court of Israel by the altar it was treated to be as holy as the altar itself and the priests would have to go in and wash their hands and their feet, you know, before they served. And by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but the priests used to walk around barefoot, you know, when they did the service, you know, there. Because they were walking on holy ground, like Moses, you know, barefooted. Well, you washed your feet, you know. And the, there was a very prescribed method in which that it had to be done. You had to take your right hand when you washed your right hand and you had to wash your right foot and you had to take your left hand and you had to wash your left foot. I don't know particularly why it had to be done that, but I've done some reading on this and I found out, yeah, it was a very peculiar kind of thing, but that's the way they had to do it. That there was something about bowing that you, would, you didn't squat down or sit, you had to bend and bow 
And there's something about humbling yourself uh, in the course of this that was uh, that was part of uh, the uh, admission before the Lord to humble yourself and to cleanse your feet as well as your hands for the service. The spices that are given here, both for the anointing oil and for the temple incense, there's a strict commandment which says nobody shall make these same ones. Um, in recent years, when I made the anointing oil, I made sure that I, I, I changed the recipe of one ingredient to make sure that I did not make, consciously did not make the same anointing oil. Because the anointing oil, that's the recipe that's given here, is only permitted in the temple and only to be made by the Kohanim, only by the priests. And so it's just a sweet oil uh, and a sweet incense. And so um, when I made anointing oil that we use, well, we made sure that we had one ingredient different from it so that we did not offend uh, this commandment. Let me turn your attention now to chapter 31. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And an interesting thing for you to note from this point on, the name Hur is not heard of again. Now Hur was the fellow who was running around with Aaron. Not too long ago, when they were dealing with the Amalekites, Moses had to raise up his arms and Hur and Aaron held up his arms. Hur was of the tribe of Judah, and um, Aaron, of course, is a Levite. But we never hear of the name Hur again. Um, there are Jewish legends and traditional teachings. We don't have solid basis to say that they're all true, but there is one I would like to share with you tonight, which I think may be pretty close to the truth, uh, if not the truth. It is said that the reason we don't hear the name Hur again is because when the children of Israel would decide to be disobedient and to make a golden calf, that they rose up against the teaching of Moses and they rose up against the Lord, and it was Hur who stood first and said, No, let us not do this. And without mercy, they slew him. Aaron saw it. And this is the reason why Aaron will agree and make the calf the children of Israel. And that's the teaching of to explain why Aaron very shortly will agree to make the calf and participate in this misdeed. It's because we never hear the name her again. And it's because that he was slain, you know, without mercy. Uh, in the course of this, and Aaron became fearful upon seeing his death. Uh, this artisan is then instructed in the works of craftsmanship uh, to make these things, and I want you to take note of what I just got through telling you. Verse 3, it says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carvings of the wood, and he may, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And I, and behold, I myself have appointed with him Oliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill 
that they may make all that I have commanded you. I don't know if you took note of this, but they're not Levites. They're going to design all of the key elements of the tabernacle. And we know that the Levites and, and the sons of Aaron, they're the ones who serve as the priests and they, they do all the duty of it. But who created these things? Who was it that God's filled with the spirit of wisdom and craftsmanship to be able to make these artifacts that would be tended to and served by the Kohanites? Some guy from Judah and some guy from Dan. Isn't that interesting? The point that I would make to you is this. God is able to use any person that he chooses to go and start a work. You don't have to have the right pedigree, be of the right tribe, be a Jew, or any of that other business. If God wants to go and do something, he can fill you with the spirit of wisdom and skill and, and, and call you to go do it. And the others will have to wait on you until it's completed. That the call of God is what is important here. If God's called you to do it, you have the necessary authority. It doesn't make any difference whether anybody agrees with you or not. You have the authority to go and do it. And that, to me, describes the case of these two men. They were anointed for this purpose. They had been filled by God with wisdom and skill to do these particular things. Moses saw the pattern but it was these men who were called to do it. Aaron was high priest, but these women were the ones called to do it. The Levites, there's a whole tribe full of Levites. We can't find any Levites that's got the skill to work with a little gold and precious stones. No, these guys have been called. These guys have been called by the Lord by their names to come and do this. And that really speaks to the issue of what the whole next book is going to be about. I don't know if you know this or not, but the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew is Vayikra. It means called. It's a whole book about when you're called, the authority you have in the Lord to go and do it. And this is a case of two men who are called, and their names are recorded in Scripture for us, in the Torah. I'm looking forward to the day I get to meet these guys. Because their, their great claim to fame is God called them. <laughs> You know, to go do it. It wasn't, wasn't their pedigree, it wasn't their heritage or whatever. It said, God said, do this. And I guess the thing that I saw from that, which is very encouraging, is God calls people to do things. Now, it may not be as spectacular as designing the Ark of the Covenant, but hey, you know, when he calls you, you have the authority to go do it. You don't need to get the approval or the agreement of other people. You don't even need God's people to agree with you. If you have God's call on you, whether God's people agree or not, you don't need it. I see a lot of people, which is a clear indicator to me, that maybe they haven't been called when they say they've been called, but they're looking for agreement from their brethren. If you're really called, you don't need that. You know, get on with the business of what the Lord has called you to do. All right, the next portion in the rest of that chapter slips over, and I want to read for you the instruction of Sabbath. Beginning at verse 12, and it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign 
between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you, to, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and was refreshed. There's an old saying, it says, it's not that Israel has kept the Sabbath, it is that the Sabbath has kept Israel. It is true. The whole theme of Sabbath uh, is an amazing teaching. It begins with Genesis 1 and it ends with Revelation 22. In Genesis 1, it's the sign of the Creator. In six days he created, he ceased from his labors, he rested on the seventh. And in Revelation 22, it talks about a future day, a future 1,000-year day where the Messiah will come back to the earth and celebrate the Sabbath of millennia with us. And the Bible is all laced through it, is all these lessons about the Sabbath. It's a sign between the whole nation of Israel and God. It's a sign to all the nations Meaning there is a people who stop and recognize him for being the creator. Who recognize him for being the creator. Yeshua in the New Testament said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Now in the New Testament we also have that expression that the Hebrew prophet John, he was on the Lord's day in the spirit. What day is that? Yeah, because the Lord says, Yeshua says, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So what's the Lord's day? The Sabbath. Sabbath is mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other theme in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? It is. More issues of debates and arguments in religious arguments are coming over this one teaching. The nations used to argue with Israel over it about having to observe it in the land of Israel. When the, when the Gentiles would come in, they would have to stop too. And if you go over, it's funny, I've heard, I've heard Christian tourists go over into the land of Israel say, well, whatever you do, be careful how many Sabbaths you're in the land because the whole country shuts down. Can't do nothing. Can't ride the buses, can't do nothing. And they actually speak of it almost as a complaint. It's still a sign over there today. Still a sign. And um, it's our future. And it's a part of what's supposed to be happening. But you know, this is the first thing that the, that the Gentile believer struggles with in their faith. And I'm almost hesitant, you know, to bring this up and put any more emphasis on it. The only reason I mention it is because I'm obligated to show you that it's in the teaching of this week. Because, you know, I see too many believers struggling with this one. If you say you obey the Lord then obey the Lord. It's pretty simple. Well, I got a job, you know, and it makes me get a new job. 
Well, gee, I don't know. You have a God who will honor you obeying him. Trust the Lord to meet your needs if you will obey him. Whatever the issue is, this is a simple one. In Isaiah 58, it says, if, wonderful promise, if you will obey and call the Sabbath a delight, I shall return the heritage of Jacob to you and cause you to ride upon the heights of the earth. Now, who, who wants a better promise than that? I'll give you the heritage of the birthright of Jacob. And I'll cause you to ride upon the heights of the earth. Everything you ever hoped to achieve, I'll turn the earth toward you to give you what you were seeking. The, the counter teaching here is if you don't do it, you'll go to death. You know, we, we think we'd get it, but we don't. We don't quite get it. It's hard for us. It's hard. It would be an open testimony every week of our faith. And then we'd have to obey on the other six days, too. <laughs> See, that's the problem about obeying the Lord. It's like a piece of string on a ball of yarn. You start obeying one, and the next one's attached, and the next commandment's attached, and the next thing you know, you, you, you can't pick and choose which to obey. You can't. It, 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 it's, it's all attached they all belong to the same God, same spirit, same commandments. And then you have these words in the back of your mind hauntingly saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, if you really do love me, keep my commandments. The interesting thing about Sabbath is you have to do it at your home. You know, some of us really would just like to have a Christian lifestyle and we don't really want to obey. <laughs> oh, I'll go do it in front of other people. I'll be religious with the assembly. But this Sabbath business, man, I'm, I, you know, whether anybody's watching or not, I've got to do it at home. In other words, I've got to make at my home first the honor of the Lord before I go and show it off to any guys. Because the making holy is you have to do that at home first. You have to stop in your home and do it there first before you go anyplace else. It's hard. This is a hard one. It's covered over with lots of theology, glossed over, you know, buffeted and knocked out of the way. Well, you know, God, uh, you know, when he came, and he nailed that all to the cross and he made a new day. No. The church made a new day. Church fathers made a new day. God was still going with plan A. Man came up with plan B. And... Here, this basic teaching, it's not just something that's limited here to this book. It's not limited just to the Torah. It extends through the whole book. And the great debate in the New Testament was not over the issue of keeping Sabbath. It was the issue of man's commandments that came in to overlay the Sabbath. The Torah gives us six commandments of keeping Sabbath. In the oral tradition, there are 1,583 commandments. And Yeshua took issue with the oral tradition. He said, you, I, you have heard it said. He didn't start off with you have heard it written, or you've seen it written. He said, you've heard it said. The teaching of men 
got in the way of this commandment. And thus, it's one of the most difficult of all of the commandments you know, that there is in the Scripture. It's in the Ten Commandments. It goes back to Genesis 1, even before the law came. It's called the commandment of remembrance. Remember to keep the Sabbath holy. It wasn't initiated by the law. It was before the law. Didn't end after the law. It goes on. Even the New Testament says it's a prophetic picture of things to come. It's your future. This may come as a shock to you, but in the Millennial Kingdom, you're going to be keeping Sabbath. You're going to be going to Jerusalem on the last day of the week to go worship the Lord. You're going to stand at the east gate of the Temple Mount and worship the Lord on Sabbath. That's what the prophecy says. And I believe it's true. And I believe that we'll look to Yeshua and realize He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And it won't be in conflict with the work of redemption or the other things that He's done. These words, these particular words, are read in every synagogue, every Sabbath around the world. Did you know that? This is the liturgy in every synagogue around the world. You could go to any synagogue tomorrow morning, you will hear these words read. We remind ourselves every week about this. It's amazing. I could get really spend the rest of the night on that, but let's move on. Now we come to something really exciting. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the tablets. And he says he's going to be up there 40 days and the, the sons of Israel can't wait 40 days. This people who have heard the voice of God from the mountain, who said to Moses, Moses, you go up on the mountain, you talk to him. Remember, I, I can't stand to hear the voice of God. If we hear the voice of God again, we'll surely die. He's up on the mountain. Just like they agreed. This mountain is full of fire and smoke all the time. There's a tabernacle they're getting ready to set up down here. They know the Spirit of God is there. There's this pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. It's all there. Aaron is there. They're all waiting. They've been told, don't go up on the mountain. Don't approach the mountain. They're obeying all that part. They're remembering all that part. But then something happened. They decided that they wanted to see God. That didn't make any sense. You know, they'd heard God. They know God's up on the mountain. But now that there's something about they want to have another, another way of, of reaching out to God. So they said, let's make a God. Let's have a God we can touch. Somebody, you know, it's got eyes and ears and we can, we can see it. And the story goes, according to the tradition that they rose up and demanded for this and rebelled. It obviously wasn't all of them. It was a small group. There will be 3,000 that will die out of it instead of 3 million. How does it 3,000 affect 3 million? It just goes to show you the power if you're willing to assert yourself concerning spiritual things. Now, they were doing it out of disobedience. Can you imagine the power you have if you're willing to obey the Lord, the power, the effect you will have on other people's lives? Oh, what can I do? Nothing. With God, lots. You know, and these people do a whole lot of damage as a result. Moses is up on the mountain, and the children 
of Israel misbehave. And God has written, he has made these tablets, he has carved them out, he has written them with the finger of God, these commandments which he has spoken, and he gives them to Moses and he says, go back down, uh, the people have misbehaved. God doesn't seem to be all that terribly upset about it, but he's going to be. And Moses comes back down again. And I want you to take note of something about the tablets that it's not too often told of us, but look at verse 15 of chapter 32. Then Moses turned, went down for the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And the tablets were God's work. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Ten Commandments on the two tablets, and we always put all the words on one side, but there were four sides. And I'll point that out to you because the number four is always tells us about the Messiah. Who wrote these? The Messiah wrote these. Because there were four sides that were written. There was two tablets on both sides. There were four parts to it. And the number four is always telling us about the work of the Messiah. Four services for the writing of God that was done here. Moses steps down off the mountain, and it says, verse 17, Now Joshua. Now, when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing, I hear. You know, it should have been mourning, but it was singing and rejoicing. Rejoicing in wickedness. And sin. And as it comes down, it came about as soon as Moses came near to the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Now, I want to explain the difference to you between vindictive anger and righteous indignation, because there's a big difference. Anger is always born of when you have been wounded. You'll get angry when you feel you've suffered a loss or somebody's done something to you. And that anger is not permissible before the Lord. It says that you're just letting your emotions get ahead of you and you're not taking on the characteristics of God to be forgiving, long-suffering, patient, and so forth. You're, you're, you're allowing your emotions to rise up in you and to overwhelm you and cause you to sin as well. And there's much instruction in the book of Proverbs about how to deal with anger, how you turn anger away and how you defuse it, and, and among spouses, how they're not to go to bed angry at one another and so forth because it, it, it does too much damage. What is Moses doing here? Is he angry? Says the word, but it's really not. It's called righteous indignation. And the definition of that is when you see someone else who's being harmed and you can do something about it to stop it. The whole nation of Israel is about to be killed. Moses, for their sake, rises up to do whatever he can to cease and stop this from happening. Um, if, if you find yourself presented in the situation where you see harm who's been done to another, it is appropriate and correct for you to have a measure of righteous indignation 
toward it, so that you might have the heart of God concerning this wrong, so you might be moved to do the right thing, to be motivated to do, not because of your personal anger, not because you have been wounded, but because someone else has been wounded, and, it is, and you see the opportunity to do, make correction or reproof, you know, to get it stopped. And there's a very subtle difference that's uh, in there between the two. One is correct and one is not. You know, so what you should do is if you feel yourself the heat of, of the emotion of the anger, stop and ask yourself, am I, am I reacting because I've been wounded? Why am I doing this? Or is it for the benefit of another? If it's for the benefit of another, you're entitled. The Lord has given you a certain sense of his heart concerning this matter so that you might deal with it. Uh, to it. And then Moses exercises that in this case. Moses goes into the tent of meeting, calls for all those who are with him, the sons of Levi go in, and then he instructs them to take their swords and go slay every person who sacrificed the calf. And 3,000 sons of Israel died this day. The converse of this is when the new covenant will come, and has come, the Holy Spirit is given on this same day and 3,000 are saved. The number 3, 30, 300, 3,000 has to do with the spiritual theme of covenants. And in this case, we see this, this it wasn't 3,001, it wasn't 2,999, or what, it was 3,000. The scripture is very careful to record for us as to what it was. And as a result, in the midst of all of this, he says, verse 29, Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. What? Talk about paradox. The Levites have gone out and, and have not shown mercy towards sons or brothers, and this is to get a blessing. Unbelievable. You know what? There's a whole bunch of things that God does that we don't believe. It's unbelievable to us. It's unbelievable that he's created a universe and created us and put us in this universe and has decided to make us his bride. Unbelievable. Who are we? See, all the works of God are awesome in this regard both in judgment as well as in blessing. The Levites will be given the duty to serve him closest in the tabernacle because they were willing to obey and hold the standard for life, not allow the people to die from this. And it was in the death of 3,000 that a nation was stopped from going to death because Moses will go back up on the mountain and the, and the anger of the Lord now comes forth and he says, okay, this is what I'd like to do. I'll wipe the whole lot of them out. I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses begs him. He says, no, no, Lord. For your sake, don't do this. Uh, remember what the Egyptians might say about you. You know, that you, you, uh, you, you delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians, brought them out in the wilderness and wiped them out. And the Egyptians were right. Those stubborn Jews, nobody can live with them. 
You know, don't, don't let our enemies say that. You know, you use your loving kindness and mercy, you know, to cover us. And it says the Lord um, took those words and began to work with them. Now, an interesting thing takes place in the midst of all of this, and that really brings it to the main point that I want to share with you tonight. And that is that, that Moses, in the midst of all of this confusion, all this hassle, all this misbehavior, all of the stuff going on, Moses, he's, he's trying, to, trying to keep it all together here. And he says, you know what, God? The only thing I really want to see is I want to see your face and your glory. You know, if I could just get rid of all of this, if I could just see you, if I could come into your presence, that's what I would desire. Well, you know, that's really where the heart of spiritual people is at. There's a moment you'll come in your life where you say, okay, I'm, I'm tired of all of this. I really just want to be in the presence of God. So you can all relate to Moses, you know, in this regard. You get to fed up with all of it. You know, let me... And God says, well, there's a little bit of a problem that you can't see my face. If you see my face, you'll die. But I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way. I understand your request, so I'm, I'm going to have you. He says, here's what I want you to do. First of all, I want you to get another set of tablets. I still want to do this. I still want to have this covenant with the nation. I want you to get this set of tablets, and I want you to bring them up to me, and I'll write them again for you. Two sets of tablets now being worked. And then when he brings him up, he says, I'm going to put you in a, in a crack, a, a cleft, which is in a rock, to a limited view of me. I'll put you in this rock, and then I'll walk up toward you, he says, and I'll put my hand over your face so you can't see mine. And then I'll turn and I'll walk into your presence and I'll turn my face away and I'll let my hand down and I'll let you see me. But you can only see me, you know, on the backside so that you'll not die. And by being in the cleft of the rock, I know you can't fall or slip or, or get in a different position to be able to see me that will protect you. And it's a beautiful, uh, wonderful picture of Moses coming into the presence of the living God. He says he sets up these safety things. And there's a tremendous lesson for us. The same thing happens to us. You know, God puts us in the cleft of the rock so that we'll not be harmed. You know, the rock, of course, is the rock of our salvation. It's Yeshua. It's the Messiah. The work of the Messiah gives us a particular view of the living God so that we can come into his presence, so that it'll be safe, so we'll live. And he protects us and he shields us, you know, so that harm will not come to us. And as he steps in, some of the most amazing things that have ever been said are said in the matter of just a couple of short verses. Let me read them for you. Chapter 34. Let me there begin there at verse 4 so you see the context. So he cut out two stone tablets like the four other ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Now what happens when you call upon the name of the Lord? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. He's calling for salvation to come to him. He's calling for Yeshua 
to come to him. And here's what happens. It says, the Lord descends in this cloud. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow down toward the earth and worship. There's very few times that we hear in the scripture where God talks about God. But let me tell you an interesting thing that it says. Every time God speaks to God, he speaks of him himself in a plural form. Every time. Let us make man in our image. Us, plural. No. The, uh, in this case, he starts off describing, now watch this. Let's say that I'm going to be the one speaking, and I'm looking at God, and I say, the Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate. How many parts? Three. One speaking, and he addresses the other two. Did you see it? It's the same thing that happened on the cross. There's one on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every time God speaks in this book, and he speaks looking to himself or speaks of himself, he says it the same way. He identifies three parts. One speaking, and he talks to the other two. And we get to hear it. It's a fascinating thing. It's fascinating. I uh, really discouraged some uh, some uh, Christian uh, theologians not too long ago who wanted to talk about the Trinity, and I said, oh, I don't teach the Trinity from the New Testament. I teach it from the Torah. And they were like, what? You know, like that's some sort of New Testament-only doctrine or teaching. It's, it's what's right here. You're not going to find a better example of God describing God than right here. These are the words that Moses heard. He walks into his presence. He's standing there in all of his glory. And this is how he describes himself. Why didn't he say, I am this? No, he's describing God to him so he might know the Lord, so he might see the glory of the Lord. He wants him to know all the parts of God. And in the course of this, it is what is called in these little two little verses in verse 6 and 7 is what was referred to a great Jewish teaching called the 13 attributes of God. The 13 characteristics of God. Um, and I'd like to touch on those just real briefly with you so you'll know what that teaching is about. It says in verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And because the first attribute that will be explained of God is that he's full of mercy, here's what they teach in this expression. They say that God's mercy is so great that the same mercy that was before you sinned is the same mercy after you sinned. That his mercy doesn't change. 
because of your sin. He was full of mercy before you sin. He'll be full of mercy after you've sinned. That your sin doesn't, you know, we, we, uh, we get the idea that the mercy of God is variable based on how bad our sin is. Oh, we need a lot of mercy here, God. I, this is a big sin. We all, just a little bit of mercy on this one, God. It's just a little sin. Huh. That's not the way the mercy of God works. It's full of mercy before and after. Compassionate. He looks down and truly sees what the need is. Even no matter what your behavior is. Well, I'm angry about this one, God. Well, he's still compassionate. Well, I feel kind of tender-hearted about this one, God. He's still compassionate. Compassionate, truly sees the situation. Gracious, full of grace. New Testament doesn't te- or Old Testament doesn't teach grace, right? It says God's full of grace. If you're going to know God, you're going to know about God's grace. Slow to anger. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. It's a good thing it was slow to anger on this one or else I wouldn't have been born. And a whole lot of other things you wouldn't have lived if you hadn't been slow to anger. That doesn't mean the anger doesn't isn't there. It's that he's slow to anger. The reason why we bring out these things is because if the Lord says he is holy and you're supposed to be holy, you're supposed to have these characteristics too. These are lessons for you. You're supposed to be full of mercy. You're supposed to be compassionate. You're supposed to be gracious. And you're supposed to be slow to anger too. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Which one was first? Loving kindness before the truth was. Some people get those backwards. Well, I'm going to lay the truth out. And then I'll love you later. Well, the way this says is God makes certain checks that he's got his loving kindness working correctly, then, then, then he brings the truth in to make sure it's done in love. The, uh, the true sign of the lack of wisdom is the man who feels duty-bound that he's got to go share the truth with somebody. And he doesn't do it in a loving way, realizing what it's going to do. The... Uh, the, the Chinese have an interesting proverb. They say that there are three necessary ingredients before you share the truth with somebody. One, it has to be the truth. Two, it has to be done uh, carefully. In other words, in love and kindness. And three, it has to be necessary. Well, necessary is also included in the loving kindness with the Lord. When you set up the loving kindness... It's loving and it's kind, you know, together. It's necessary. It's needful to be done. We need to do this. Let's be, you know, let's understand. Let's be loving about it. Now now I'll bring the truth in, you know, to do it. Many people leave off the loving kindness before they share the truth. And then he says he keeps loving kindness for thousands. Um, That's fascinating. It says he remembers your good deeds. He remembers every act of kindness that you do. He remembers every work of love that you do. He keeps keeps the log on all of the goodness that you've done. What you did well. Um, You know, the great fear that we all have, you know, 
I may do good and nobody will know about it. Well, the Lord says, hey, I remember. I keep track of all of it. I, I, I keep that. I keep all those loving kindnesses for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Basic Torah teaching. What's the difference between iniquity, transgression, and sin? Here's basic lesson. Iniquity is filthiness. Evil. That's iniquity. Transgression is that you willfully break the commandment of God. You willfully disobey. Sin. You made a mistake. By omission. I didn't know about that. I was ignorant. I goofed. I didn't mean to, but I did it. And, and, and a, wrong, a wrong happened. He forgives all of them. He doesn't just forgive the ones that you forgot about, the ones you didn't intend. He forgives even the evil and the filthiness. And he forgives the willful disobedience, you know, for it. He forgives all three types. And yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He doesn't acquit anybody. Nobody gets away with it. He doesn't make a mistake. You get the punishment, but he doesn't, he doesn't do it to be vindictive. He does it to correct you. You know, I can tell you right now that fathers do not spank their sons and discipline their sons because they are interested in the joy of seeing harm done to their son. They do it because they're trying to correct their son. He says he will not let you go unpunished. You know what the greatest problem with young children growing up? They don't get punished. And it screws up their thinking. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody's interested in me. I guess I don't. I'm not important. I'm not valuable. The one who's punished knows he's loved, he's disciplined, he knows he's safe, he knows that if he does, goes across the line, he'll be hauled back. He's tethered in, he's safe, he'll be corrected, it'll be better for him. I can remember the days when I was disciplined and how good I felt afterwards. One, that it was over with. <laughs> and two, I had been restored. The wrong was there, it was always going to be there, but then I'd been restored. If you're not punished for your misbehavior, you're never restored. You always walk around thinking, well, one of these days they may find out about that. Then, then I'll still have to face it. And you're kind of like sticking it back in the closet and you hope, nope. You know, God's one of God's attributes is he, he doesn't let you get away with it. You get punished. He restores you. That's essentially what he's doing. He draws you back in and brings you there. And then he says, visiting the iniquity. God comes and will visit you. He pays what is due. He pays his bills. He does that which is required to be done. If he's got to come visit you to get the job done, he'll do it. Now, this works both for blessing as well as for the other. 
You can count on it. He will come visit you. He will come deal. He's not going to ignore you. He knows who you are and where you're at, and he'll get his business done with you correctly. You can count on it. It's one of his attributes. And if he's got to deal with you by going down to one of your children or children's children, he'll even go that far to get it done. In the case of curse and punishment, it'll go all the way down to the third and fourth generation. But what's with regard to blessing, it's to the thousandth generation. If it's good that you were supposed to have to you, not only will it give it to you all of your days, he'll give it to your son all his days, his son all his days, his son after him. To make sure you get it, he will visit you. The, um, you know, one of the interesting attributes that they, they give about, you know, a good pastor. Well, hey, he visited me. You know, I was in the hospital. You know, he came saw me. Well, I got news for you. If you go to the hospital, God will be visiting you. You lose somebody in your family, God will be visiting your house. Some great thing happened to you, a great rejoicing thing in your family, you can expect Him to come visiting you. That's the kind of God He is. He knows He wants to be involved. He's part of your life. Um, We need to recognize this attribute Him. And by the way, we ought to do some of these same things to our own brethren. We ought to have some of those attributes, you know, for our own brethren that we do for them as well. Repay. Pay properly. Render that which is correct and appropriate. Go visit your brother, you know, if that's what the need is. Now, an amazing thing follows this. Here's Moses. is now comes square to in a sense face-to-face, but it's back-to-face here. And he comes uh, right into the characteristics of God and he has, he has no choice but to call out this prayer. I want you to listen to this prayer. Verse 9, And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate that do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thine own possession. I don't know about you, but the prayer that I lead men when they come to know the Lord is I say, follow after this. Say to the Lord, O God, you know, up in heaven, I'm praying to you. I have sinned. I repent. I Please forgive me of my sin. Would you please come live inside of me? I accept you. Would you please come and make your dwelling place in me? And make me one of your sons. Make me your possession. That's the sinner's prayer. That's the prayer of confession calling for salvation of God. Please forgive me. You know, please come in and please make me part of you. You know, you're welcome and I accept you. And make me part of you. And that's, that's the prayer that, that Moses prayed for all of the children of Israel. Isn't that interesting? The sinner's prayer. Now, you won't find the sinner's prayer up in the New Testament, but you will find it here in the presence of God with Moses. It's the same prayer that we instruct others when they go to receive the Lord. Whether they realized it or not, they've been brought up into that moment, stuck in the cleft of the rock by the work of Yeshua, 
and you're just kind of help guiding them along through Moses' prayer. So they can do the same thing Moses did with the Lord. And usually the thing that brings them there, the thing that will cause them to be at that moment, is they'll come square face to face with the attributes of God. That's basically all you have to do is just tell them who God is and how wonderful God is, and they want it. I want a God that's full of mercy. I want a God that's compassionate. I want somebody who'll look into my interest, come visit me when I need to be visited. You know, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yeah, I got all those. You know, I want that. Oh, if that's all, what do I got to do to get that? Oh, I, all I have to do is say, I'm sorry, please come into my life. Please make me your possession. Make a covenant with me, God. You know, so that I can be part of you. Look what the Lord says, verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. The word fearful means awesome. You know, it basically says... Hey, I like, I like your plan. I like the idea that you're willing to walk away from sin. I like the idea that you're willing to accept me as God. And I like the idea that you want to be part of my family. Here's what I'm going to do in exchange. I'm going to make an agreement with you. Make a covenant with you. And then I'm going to display myself in your life way beyond anything that you ever thought or any others have seen. Now, when did he do that? When, when did he make this covenant that he did all of these kinds of things? That's what this whole plan has been about. Did you know that? That's what's happening with us, with his own son. What's intended in the future. This thing started out, it hasn't finished yet. He's doing this from generation to generation to generation. He's still doing this. This is what is meant. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has entered into the imagination of the heart of man the things which God has prepared for and that loves him. That's personal and direct. Same covenant that he says here. He says, I'm going to do things with you which men have not seen before. Signs and wonders and special things that will take place. And it will be an awesome thing, and I'm going to perform it with you. Not the least of which is get married to us. It never ends. You know, it, we haven't seen the end of this yet. This is this covenant that God has made with us, man, if we will do these things. He goes on to say that he will then drive out. Be, be sure to observe that what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you're going, lest it become a snare in your midst. I'm going to make a covenant with you, but you can't go around making other covenants with other people. You can't make a covenant with the world and be successful with this covenant that God has made with you. This covenant that God makes with you is a very special covenant. 
He'll, he'll handle all the things that you're going to do, that you're going to need, that you really seek after and desire, and you're not going to get any of them from the world. If you do, it'll just ensnare you. It'll just foul things up. And in the case of the children of Israel, their history with the land of Israel has been filled with example after example after example of becoming ensnared with the people of the land. In 1967, in the Six-Day War, the attack on the Golan Heights, Israel had to attack the Golan Heights. The Syrians were using the launch weapons over into the Galilee and Tiberias area, and they had to take them off these high, high hills there. And the battle was... It was uphill, almost impossible. I've been there. It's fascinating terrain. Uh, very, very difficult if you had to fight going up the hill, you know, to get this ground. And Israel was struggling mightily. And the Syrians in the Six-Day War decided that they really wanted to bring international pressure against Israel because of the war and the battle for the Golan Heights. And to get the ceasefire accelerated with the UN and to bring additional pressure upon Israel from the, Israeli, from the international community, they announced on, from Radio Damascus this propaganda thing and they said that the Israelites had um, gone around the Golan Heights and were attacking the outskirts of Damascus, that there were Jews in Damascus. You know, to, it was an out-and-out lie that uh, they were... They were uh, they were killing uh, Syrians in the city of Damascus. And the uh, Assyrian so soldiers up on the Golan Heights heard these broadcasts and said, oh my goodness, we're, we're surrounded. Packed up and left the Golan Heights to go back to Damascus. And Israel walked in to the Golan Heights. They never fought for it. God blew them out of there and they drove in and occupied the ground afterwards. All they did was have a little faith to start, and God moved them out. That's how God can do this. God knows how to take the enemy out of the land, and it's not the way that we would think. But he said, if you'll go in by faith, he says, this is what I'll do. I'll show myself to you. And in these two particular cases, um, one was, was total fear that was unfounded. Well, both of them were actually total fear unfounded actually used lies, their own lies against them. Their own people believed the lie. Israel didn't believe the lie, they believed the lie. And God drove them out, you know, from the land. And that was the case here. The way that Israel actually took the land, and they were under commandment to do it, they, they sent a letter, a, a written thing, that actually went in to all of these different people that were in the land, when, they, when Joshua later went in with them. They said... If you'll make peace with us, you can stay. If you're going to fight us, we will uh, attack you. But if you don't want to live with us and you don't want to be in peace, then leave now. You're free to leave. You know, if you don't want to stay, leave. But we're coming in and this thing has been given to us by the Lord. And when you stop and think about it, if there really is a God and this really is his land and he's really given it to the children of Israel, this is about as fair a, a deal as you can have. Live in peace, make a peace agreement, or leave, or if you're going to fight, then lose. And that's basically the way it worked. But what are we doing today? We're not doing this. 
We're not doing this in the land of Israel. And as a result, we got trouble. Instead, we're making covenants with the people of the land. Isaiah calls it the covenant of death. Not a covenant like this covenant described here with Moses. A different kind of covenant. A covenant that has now become a snare. All of this matter that we have here brings us all to um, one particular last attribute that I want to explain to you about God. This, you know, in, in the Jewish way of thinking, there's always an exception. You know, there's a rule and there's always the exception. Let me give you the other exception about the attributes of God. I told you the 13 attributes of God. Let me tell you about this other one. Verse, let me read it, verse uh, 14. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Another attribute of God. He's jealous. He's like the bridegroom who absolutely will not tolerate under any circumstances, any way you want to explain it, if his bride wants to commit adultery. He just doesn't understand. He just won't tolerate it. He just won't accept it. He just says it's unacceptable. I won't under any circumstances permit it. I won't let you, Israel, honor or steal my glory and give it to some other god. It's just unacceptable. So he says, hey, I'm jealous. So that you'll understand, you know, about me. Actually, that's to our benefit. It's to our benefit. He's not going to change his mind later on. You know, after we finally get our act together, we finally start obeying, we finally start trying to keep the covenant, and then he, he's not going to change his mind. So, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this. I think I've changed my mind. I think I'll go get me another bride. He's not going to do that. You know, he, he says he's jealous. He says he's made his decision. That's it. Not negotiating this anymore. And actually, that's wonderful, you know, I think, in our case. The final part of this whole process, as he concludes there in 15, he says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for you, for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make for yourself any molten gods. You don't get, you don't have the liberty to go out and make any kind of god you want. You know, you don't get to form gods, make gods to your liking. And just because you're associated with, with a people, another people over here, you, you don't have the freedom. He says, I'm jealous. You don't have the freedom to go and conform to them. Like Daniel said, we are an unclean people living in the midst of an unclean land. And you know what we did to ourselves? Because we wouldn't believe these commandments. And we wouldn't stand up and speak for the Lord. Instead, we let some people come in and say, let's make a golden calf. Just a few of them. And everybody went along with it. And it's going to be our death. We don't realize it. The death of our community, our city. You know, every list of all those sins that are in the Torah, they're going to say, you have to accept them. You have to fall down and worship these idols. Even though that same God is sitting right up there on the mountain, the same mountain that's got the fire coming off of it, 
that you're at the foot of, and they're going to say, no, you've got to do this, and you'll have to make some hard decisions. It's coming. It's coming to your workplace and so forth. And it's our community, our community right here today. Another reason why we need to find out what these commandments are about and we need to obey. Because if you don't, it's your life. Because the enemy is definitely coming. And he is opposed to the Lord. And he is opposed, and he hates you. He does hate you. And the only way to defend against him is for you to obey the Lord. And let the Lord do the fighting. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for your commandments. And, oh, God, I would pray that you would enlarge our hearts to obey you. Lord, that uh, if we don't understand the commandment, that you would instruct us properly so that we know how to obey. That we might be obedient children to you. And that in your house that we might have safety and protection from all of these things that would come to do harm. And, Lord, even as we know that we should discipline our children and protect them from the things that are outside, Lord, we pray that you might come and do the work of a father with us as well to protect us from the things that are happening in the world. And, Lord, we know that the thing that you would ask us to do is to look to you, to, to repent and turn away from our own ways, to accept you, Lord, and to be a part of your possession. And so, Lord, like the prayer of Moses, we ask for that upon us as well. And we ask that you might be our God and we might be your people. And it's in the name of the Messiah that we pray this prayer. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.